eyes may be able to see, but without a heart, you cannot feel. Welcome to the It Will Come Show Fireside Edition, the show where we interview community leaders, influencers, and professionals on how they found their way in business and life. This is your host, George C.O.C. Samuels, and today's guest is Joshua Spodek, best-selling author of Leadership Step-by-Step and adjunct professor at New York University, leadership coach and workshop leader for Columbia Business School, columnist for Inc., and founder of SpodekAcademy.com. Now, Josh has led some seminars in leadership, entrepreneurship, creativity, and sales at Harvard, Princeton, MIT, and the New York Academy of Science, and in private corporations. He holds five Ivy League degrees, including a PhD in astrophysics and an MBA, and studied under a Nobel Prize winner. And if that wasn't impressive enough, he has visited North Korea twice, swam across the Hudson River, and has done burpees every day for six years, 90,000 plus and counting. Whoa, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. Man, it's an absolute pleasure. And for those of you that are listening in, I met Josh through another guest that we had on the show before, Aaron O'Brien, and also another member of our community, Christina Cantors. So um, Josh has already come highly recommended, and when I learned more about him, I just had to have him on the show. But to get us started, Josh, could you please tell us a little bit about your career origins and how that led you to where you are today? I'll give you the two-minute version, and yeah. if you want longer, then let me know what more detail to go into. But Definitely. I have a PhD in physics, and that was my big start of you know where I started my career. I loved science growing up. Uh, I still love science, although I didn't like the life of a researcher. It was really a lot of debugging and papers now in physics. They're like hundreds of names on them. You're not really doing a whole lot. So I was open to when a couple friends of mine told me that they were thinking about starting a company. They just didn't have an idea, and so the three of us would meet over beers for a while. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I came up with an idea that we ended up running with and starting a company. One guy moved to Boston to get married, but the other guy and I started the business and that was Submedia. The invention was to put these boxes that we put on the subway tunnel walls that when the train went by, it looked like a movie screen. It was pretty cool and patents and business plans and funding and almost IPO'd and that was great. I got squeezed out by the investors in the early 2000s recession and post 9-11 yeah, it was a very, that was an emotionally very difficult time for me and emerged from it eventually realizing I, I wanted to keep starting companies, went back to business school because, you know, physics is good for a lot of things, but it doesn't help you run a business. No. And <laughs> then that's where I got my first taste of leadership classes, which I didn't know you could teach. And that opened the door to a whole side of life that I really didn't know or care about before, which was the emotional and social side of things. And to learn social and emotional skills. And business school, it opened the door, but my classes were reading and case studies and lectures and learning psychology results. It's like reading about lifting weights. It doesn't actually give you the skills or the strength. Mm. So it wasn't until after school that I started practicing these things. You know, I'd go out and think, oh, I know all this leadership stuff. And I'd go into situations where leadership was required and I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to remember what I read in a book. So the past 10 years or so has been developing my own leadership. In the past, a little more than half of that has been when I learned about active and experiential teaching and learning. It was applying a very different style of teaching, which I find much more effective. And I get these great reviews from my students about how to learn experientially. I hope that was two minutes. 
Oh man, no, I was like, keep going, keep going. <laughs> but I, I mean, I have a few questions already for you. Well, one, how was the transition for you from being a physicist and then essentially becoming an entrepreneur? We're talking about years and I had the idea in 96. Mm. We filed for the patent in 98 and got our first funding in 99. You know, at the beginning, it was literally working in the garage, like figuring out how to make this thing work. And then it was starting to write business plans and writing patents. And so I had a nice transition. A lot of the time, since we were keeping it secret before the patent, mm. we would not talk about anything about it. So there was a long period when I was sneaking out from the physics department to work on things and not telling my advisor because I thought maybe if it doesn't work out, I'll still come back. And also slowly moving into the business world and learning about what different things, like there's, it's different criteria. I had to learn that if you're selling something, then the only way someone's going to pay you is if it makes their life better than the cash that they're giving you. Mm. And before that, I would look at making money as this crass thing. You know, Einstein wasn't rich. Newton yeah. wasn't rich. And I wanted to be like them. Mm. And making money would be, you know, from the physics world, you're like, it's a distraction. But in the business world, it's if you believe in your product, do you believe that, in our case, we're bringing money into the transit system that ideally would mean that fares could be kept lower? So I think this is making the world a better place. That was like a hard transition to make. And then learning how to dress yeah. and how to... Like, I didn't know what the difference was between equity and debt. I didn't, I'd be in a meeting with a VC and they're like, da-da-da, equity, da-da-da, debt. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was smart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a different language, right? Yeah, I mean, different values as well. Yes. And where do you think that narrative, though, of the, um, either the, the poor scientists or even the starving artist, where do you think those narratives came from? Interesting. Uh, I mean, certainly in business, to be a starving business person is not a very no. highly regarded thing. So <laughs> in physics, you know, it's all about studying and learning about nature and doing experiments. And it's, I think it's supposed to be selfless. And you're curious. Money doesn't really enter into that. Of course, you have to pay your bills and eat and things like that. So you got to get paid. But, but I mean, when I was doing physics, I was so wrapped up in learning and discovering and sharing what I learned that there wasn't time to focus on making money. You would, of course, choose things. You know, in graduate school, you get, you get a stipend. So you live a life where you're not going to run out of money. But to devote yourself to making money that wouldn't happen. I mean, now I'm marketing, you know, if, I don't know if anyone's ever said like, oh, hmm, I'm going to try some online marketing, type in anything remotely related to online marketing into, into DuckDuckGo or whatever in your search engine. And you're flooded with all the stuff of like, buy this thing and you'll get rich. And like, there's no mailing list. You'll have a million people on your mailing list tomorrow and they'll be buying in the like higher percentage than your conversion rates and all this stuff. It's really like, make money, make money. There's no community like that in physics or in, in art. Yeah, so it's, I guess we're bombarded by a lot of the sleazy <laughs> stories or narratives of like, get rich quick, which is pervasive, right? Even in the business world. I got this message out of the blue from someone at some place and uh, some company that does online teaching stuff. And they said, oh, I see what we see of your course. Can we schedule a call? And I say, well, you know, just so we don't waste anyone's time. You know, I don't have any budget for anything. And does that make any difference? And he goes, there will definitely be, this is perfect for what you do. That's his word, perfect. <laughs> and there will be very quick ROI. So I go, if you believe that it's going to be perfect and there's going to be an ROI, why don't you do the investing? 
And he says, well, we have certain costs and we want to make sure that you're into it. And I go, well, I have certain costs exactly. and I want to make sure you're into it. And then I just wrote like, I don't think this call would be very useful. <laughs> oh, God. I wonder if, did it sound scripted as well from his end? Yeah, he, I mean, he was trying to hold off on information. He wanted me to get on the call. I mean, yeah. maybe it'll be a great product. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm done paying up front. If you yep. believe in it, then I don't mind sharing in the success. Mm. I certainly don't mind you investing in me. Yeah. But no one's offering that. Now, I've always been really intrigued by businesses based on creative IP and patents. And because, you know, in the startup ecosystem, general startup advice is always to like fail fast, uh, ship frequently. Whereas, you know, with the type of ideas that you had and your approach, you know, it was like kind of keeping things under wraps. What are your thoughts on this? Is it just a different style of business or entrepreneurship? I mean, I believe that the problem determines the solution, meaning mm-hmm. in this case that the business strategy and business model is going to depend on what your business is. In our case, it was hardware-based, and we had very fixed constraints that we were putting boxes on the walls of subway tunnels. We had a small number of subway systems in the world that we could work with, and the engineering was very specified a lot about the product. So I, I don't see a whole lot of differences that we could do mm-hmm. than... Whereas if you're doing a software business where, oh, and by the way, to put up one of these displays, the first one was over a million dollars. We got that cost way down over time. Wow. But there's certain things that you have to do to get the money to do it and to get the relationships and so forth. So whereas if you're doing a software business, you're building some apps and it doesn't cost you a million dollars to change a few things on it, then yeah, you're going to have a different strategy, a different model. And now we made some Mistakes? I don't know. Some of the decisions we made, I would have made differently. Mm. I, working with transit systems is tremendously difficult. They're not profit-oriented. Their goal is not advertising. Their goal is moving people. Mm. It took us a while to learn, for example, that I mean, the top criteria for our displays was that it had to be safe. I mean, a display falling down and hurting someone yeah. would be the end of our company forever. Yeah. But just because they're safe doesn't mean that we've successfully communicated to the transit system that they're safe. And they care about safety, too. That's their top priority as well. Mm. So, you know, for example, we learned that if we didn't say this is safe or that safety is our top priority first, a lot of times they would never stop telling us how important safety was and they would never accept that how safely we built these things. So, you know, you have to understand your, your market. We had multiple markets. We had, yeah. I mean, we kind of had to sell to the transit system. We would share revenue with them and we had to sell to the advertisers because we wanted revenue from them. So we have to say, the, you know, you have to speak the language of the customer or the community that you're in. And it took us a while to learn that. You mentioned previously that uh, you didn't think that leadership could be taught. <laughs> now, what does leadership mean to you? I'm glad that you mentioned that in terms of teaching linked and people who believe that leadership is either taught or not. It's like really tying your hands behind your back and you're not going to get very far. It's and, and meanwhile, the people who are who I consider the top leaders are continually learning throughout their lives. Mm. And so to me, what leadership is, is less interesting than how do I improve as a leader? Because what, what is leadership is more like a definitional question. Mm. How to improve as a leader is, some, is something you can really do to change your life. Mm. And that's why I love teaching leadership. I mean, I knew I would like teaching, but I didn't realize how much I would love it. And giving someone a bunch of reading to do, it's not the worst thing in the world world, but it's not the most effective either. Is this why you subscribe to the experiential type teaching? Yeah, because leadership is not just an intellectual activity. It's Mm. far from it. And the learning that I got was 
heavily weighted toward intellectual learning and watching TED talks, reading books, that's intellectual. Mm. To leadership is fundamentally, it's active, it's social, it's emotional, it's expressive, it's performance-based. Mm. And no amount of reading psychology papers will give you the skills to practice those things. And there's a lot of people who just read about it and people who just don't actually put themselves in the social, emotional, challenging situations. It's kind of like you go to the gym and you're lifting some weights and someone who's clearly out of shape comes up and starts telling you how to do it. You don't know what you're talking about. And even if they know what they're talking about, they'll say it in a way that it's not helpful. Whereas someone who didn't read the books, but people who lift weights or, or like physical trainers, they often know anatomy way better than a doctor. Well, not a doctor, but they get to learn anatomy very well because they felt that muscle sore. They felt that muscle give out. They mm-hmm. felt that bone, you know, like knock against that other bone. I'm just thinking about like, yeah. <laughs> when I said bone, I was like, how do you feel bone? I'm like, I'm not going to finish this one. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, they know how the bones relate to each other and things like that because they've done it. Or really more like the example I, I use most is piano that you can read about piano theory, you can get lectured about piano theory, but putting your hands on the keyboard, you got to put your hand on the keyboards. And doing that is how you learn. I think people who play a lot of scales will get a sense of the theory behind them better than someone who just learns about harmonics and things like that, but doesn't actually play. This makes me think about also why, I guess you take away all the technology once upon a time, the way we used to learn, you know, was by copying the elders or our parents or, you know, in the, in the village environment shadowing and then i even look now like my nephew i was watching him over the weekend six and he is already wanting to be a youtuber and he's spending all this time watching videos of what other people are doing and he asked me oh can you help me like record my first youtube video i was like yeah sure and he already knew all the cues of like what to do at the end of a video you know say and remember guys to to like this video and subscribe to my channel i'm like how old are you you know six years old and (laughs) you know already learning these things without going to textbooks without really knowing how to read thoroughly but just absorbing all that information by yeah watching and kind of experiencing it too because i guess with all our tech now we're able to interact in that way yeah, I don't know. Like, what is your experience being like your observations with the next generation as well with all our tech when it comes to learning? Well, learning is learning whether it's technology or not technology. There's mm-hmm. a great quote that you make me think of by John Dewey is an American. People think Dewey Decimal System, but there's a different Dewey. Yeah. And people call him a philosopher, but he was also a teacher and, and he worked a lot on education. And there's this great quote. He said, children are always asking questions, mm-hmm. except in the classroom. Yeah, And it really reveals that our educational system, this is oversimplifying it, but Mm. okay, actually, if you look at what they teach you, intellectually, very challenging, Mm. and they'll get you to learn a lot of facts. But if you look at the behavior that they teach, and leadership, entrepreneurship, these are very behavioral things. Mm. The behavior that they teach, the word I find that describes it most is compliance. And it's, it's not just a behavior, but it's also like, what's important? is the teachers, we tell you what's important, what's worth studying, what's not worth studying, how to study and so forth. We will tell you that and you should comply with that. And the people who succeed, we call them the smartest, but it's the smartest who also comply. The people who don't comply leave. And sometimes for failure, 
there because our society doesn't have a, a great place for them. But, you know, one of the big things that taught me about where I started learning about how to teach experientially and actively was by learning a lot about actors. And a lot of actors yeah. are, you know, they're extremely skilled at what they do. And many of the things that leaders wish they had, actors excel at, like emotional connection and being able to read people and motivate people. Mm. I mean, they make people laugh and cry. That's a pretty effective motivation yeah. or pretty strong motivational skills. And then when you find out the top actors, how many of them dropped out of school, never went to college? It's a lot. But it's not that they didn't go to school at all. They dropped out of regular school. A lot of them, then they would go take acting classes, which is a very different style of learning, much more active and experiential. And you continue learning there. So the more I learned about that, the more eventually I took some acting classes and I found a very effective style of teaching not intellectual teaching, but social and emotional growth and development. And so I took a lot of that to bring that into teaching leadership in most active, social, emotional, expressive performance-based fields. The learning is you start with the fundamentals, you start with the basics and you keep practicing the basics. And when you master them, then you go up to the next level. And when you master the intermediate stuff, you go up to the advanced level. And, you, and when you master that, you keep, you know, there's ever higher, ever greater learning levels of mastery. That's not traditional style of education, at least not the traditional style of education that I went through. There wasn't performance connected to math or history. There could be. There are teachers who do that. I don't teach those, so I don't really know exactly how they do it. But in leadership, it's, I mean, you have to perform. You have to do things. So that's why my book, for example, is a book of exercises that one exercise, it starts with very basic things and then build and build and build. And by the end of it, you're doing some things that really top leaders look at and they're like, I wish I knew how to do that. And so top level leaders, and I've had entrepreneurs take my courses who have sold businesses before. Mm. You know, they're successful and they learn things that they've never learned before. So I'm very passionate about this. Oh, no, I love it. And you got me thinking too about like, even in a workplace, uh, why is it that, you know, you have leaders who have their title as leader, yet there are other leaders that people actually listen to, you know, like the influencers. What's going on in the work environment whereby we are appointing people as leaders by title, but if you actually ask the people, they know who the real leaders are in the community. There's many things, but the biggest thing that comes to mind is that there's a difference between authority and leadership. If I have authority over you and I tell you, if you do this, I'll give you a raise or I'll give you a bonus, you'll get paid. If you don't do it, you'll be demoted or maybe fired. Mm. Then you'll comply. If you're passionate about it, you might be passionate about it, but you would have been passionate about it anyway in that case. I'm just getting you to do what I told you to do. Well, whether I have authority over you or not, if I learn what your motivations are and I get you to I connect that motivation that you already have to the task, you're going to want to do it. You're going to feel that I've imbued the project with meaning. You'll feel purpose because it matters to you, things you care about. It will become something you care about. So someone who works like that, whether they have authority or not, people are going to gravitate toward that person. Now, just because someone has authority doesn't mean that they're authoritarian, the question is, do they rely on it? So ideally, you have people who get authority, have authority, not because they're wielding it. Sometimes you have to. It's crunch time. People are disagreeing. You got to get the job done. That's a time when you might say, look, there's many ways to do this. I'm not sure the right way. We're going to do it this way, and we'll revisit it later. Sometimes you don't have time to spend the time to work with someone and really get to their motivations and connect that to the task. But ideally, the people with authority aren't using it except in when they desperately need it, and then the rest of the time, they're not using it. Yeah. Ideally, that's the situation. And then people aren't like, well, that person, 
I got to go to that person because my paycheck depends on it, but that's the person who actually gets the job done. Yeah. Hopefully you don't get into situations like that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, if you do get into situations like that, that to me is a sign of a lack of, of leadership, almost like a leadership vacuum. Mm. And when I have a client in a situation like that, the first thing I think of is this is an opportunity for you. If you fill that vacuum, mm. then you will be promoted faster. You'll be considered for higher level positions in a way that you wouldn't be if you just accept it and just complain or, but that's, these opportunities are all over the place because most people don't know how to lead effectively. Everyone knows how to be authoritarian, mm. but that often provokes resistance. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a very good distinction because I think even I've gotten confused in some workplaces because they would typically interchange leaders with managers or people in authority. So for example, you know, a group of managers uh, will be put into a special leadership group and then training would be given to them. But, you know, if you, if you talk to people maybe one, two degrees away or just general employees, they will also be confused because they might have their own opinions as to what a good leader is or isn't. And, you know, they might have the same opinion of, oh, can you actually teach leadership? This guy or this woman clearly doesn't have it. But I think that distinction between authority and leadership is a good one, which I will definitely keep in mind next time when I'm at work. Uh, let me know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess still on the topic of maybe good or bad leadership, how does that affect culture uh, within a community? You know, what have your experiences been and w- what have you learned? Well, I should say that I mostly focus in my teachings on personal leadership and one-on-one leadership. So mm-hmm. how you interact with one person at a time and as well as yourself, how to be aware of how your emotional system works and how the human emotional system works. Mm-hmm. So culture tends to emerge from a different application of leadership, which is how you're working with whole teams at a time. So it's a little bit out of what I generally work on. Mm. To me, it's like microeconomics and macroeconomics. They're different parts of it and equally important, but just different focuses. Mm. So culture for me is, see, I have some corporate clients and the way I I work with them to work on that is to work one-on-one with the people that you work on. There's also some team things where you'll do big things that affect whole corporations. I have less to say about there just because it's not something that I focused on as much. Yeah. I apologize if it's no, not no. a great answer, but I, <laughs> one of the things that I learned in physics, I had this professor who, he was hired by one of the Nobel Prize winners in the department, specifically to work on hard problems. He was this great professor. Mm. And I once asked him, this is after I left physics. In physics, you learn not to ask what happens if something moves faster than the speed of light, things like that. Like, yeah. It's like science fiction sorts of things. So after I'd been out of physics for a while, I went back to him and I said, all right, you know, when I was in the field, I didn't ask because the books didn't tell us anything in the answers. But, you know, what do you think about faster than light speed or anti-gravity, stuff like that? I really love the answer. He said, I have no more experience in that area than anyone else. I know all this physics. I have all this experience in physics. But that's beyond, I don't know anything more than someone walking down the street. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know. Not only do I not know, but I don't know anymore. Like, I know as much physics as anyone. Mm. But what you're talking about, I have no experience and I have no access to that information. But I guess that's just, it goes to your wisdom as well with that. Because, you know, everybody loves to give their opinion on everything. And I think being able to know what you are perhaps knowledgeable about or willing to give an opinion on and those things that, you know, you don't have enough information to give an opinion on. Uh, so kudos to you for... Uh, <laughs> well, opinions, I, I mean, I can give opinions. 
<laughs> but it won't tell you anything more than someone who's anyone else who has no more yeah. experience in the area than me. My you opinion would, on culture, I think it's great. <laughs> I love it. I like it when it works. I don't like it when it doesn't work. <laughs> now, I know you and I do have a share a passion or at least appreciation for communities. But why do you think businesses call community work soft? And I think you touch on this in our email exchanges. I think probably hard came first. So people talk about working the spreadsheets and doing discounted cash flows and figuring out all the details. Is that's I'm not sure, but probably people say that's hard, meaning difficult. Mm. And but then people would contrast the other stuff for soft. You're not touching. It's does not. When the money comes in, the money goes out. You can yeah. write down like thirteen dollars and twenty seven cents came in. Thirteen dollars and twenty seven cents went out. But if someone learns something or someone leads someone, there's no measurable thing. And so yeah. I guess soft also implies like the edges aren't so clear and you can't put a ruler against it. And it actually, it's funny that Edwards Deming, who's this uh, actually a former physicist who then, he was a big figure in bringing Japan out of its post-war destruction into being a powerhouse. And he said, mm. people focus on what they can measure because they can measure it. And you can see what progress you make. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's more important. It just means it's measurable. A lot of things that you can never measure are yeah. extremely important. And it's funny because coming from physics, you'd expect him, he focused on things that were measurable, but he didn't say that that made them important. You could handle the measurable things and that would be inputs off into stuff that was less measurable, but more important. Wise words again, because that's something that I have personally felt too, especially when it comes to a lot of these soft things. And I think a lot of people do know there are a lot of elements in our lives where not always measurable, but we just know it to be important. But it is interesting to see these days because in the world of big data and everyone talking about data all the time, everybody is still attempting to, to want to measure things that are immeasurable or previously have been. Yeah, I mean, do you think this is changing though now? I guess with more ability to measure, and I guess considering where our tech is going, you know, with AI, et cetera, do you think things are changing when it comes to looking at the soft as maybe not as important? It's very easy for me to say, I'm tempted to say yes, because, but that might be partly because the world that I connect with, mm. the people that I connect with and how I connect with them is definitely increasing that way. People aren't coming to me to learn how to operate a spreadsheet or do the so-called hard stuff. Mm. I'm not in finance, but people do come to me for, you know, how do I lead? How do I, you know, I've just got promoted into this position. I don't know what to do. Mm. And then they'll, they'll recommend me to someone else. And so it feels like, oh, my whole world is full of people who are trying to learn these emotional and social skills. It must be catching up. But I might feel differently if I were in Silicon Valley or if I were mm. working in Wall Street, something like that. I think that, well, <laughs> the entrepreneur always believes, I hope entrepreneurs generally believe that what they do is going to change the world. I personally believe that my book and my practice will change how we teach leadership. I mean, one of my role models is Konstantin Stanislavski, who changed acting forever. I'm using his approach, the structure of his approach for how to learn acting, which is similar to how we learn how to play musical instruments, how we learn how to play sports, this active experiential style, and I'm applying it to leadership. I hope that I affect a big change. I'd like for people to look back and say, hey, Josh Spodek was the one who brought this way of teaching and made it more effective. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll have an effect there. Going back to your lane of leadership and 
Also, North Korea. What did you learn about leadership after visiting North Korea? Did you learn anything about leadership after visiting North Korea? Well, you know, there is talking about authority. Yeah. <laughs> That's very authoritarian, and so yeah. their style of leadership is not my style of leadership. It's very effective because they're in a place. Obviously, it's effective for the, for the people at the top. If they don't care about the people that are being hurt in the process, but you know, I came back and I noticed a lot of articles. They always talk about. The leader is a dictator and is like doing everything.、Mm. And the way I looked at it, the way I saw it, it just didn't seem like these dictators were like they didn't seem like the most capable people. And、mm. I think it's more a description of a system that if one of the leaders disappeared, if Kim Jong Un disappeared for some reason,、mm. I think someone would simply fill in the spot and everything would be exactly as it was before.、Mm. There's a system in place that everyone who has power benefits from, and everyone who doesn't have power can't do anything about it. And it's kept in place because of the geopolitical situation of you know China wants a buffer between them and the U.S. in South Korea because China historically has been invaded several times from the Korean Peninsula, and the U.S. doesn't want to leave because then South Korea might get attacked. Japan is right there. Like it's a very stable situation that. No one wants it to move. People might be happy if North Korea were free at some point in the future, but to get there, there's no path from any change from what it is now. It messes it up for someone in that powerful, and so that if they could magically switch, they would. But to get there, there's no path to get there. So I don't think it's any great leaders, insiders, skills. It's just a system that's very stable. Interesting, and the system itself then it seems to also influence what type of leaders thrive and what type of leaders don't. Well, it's whoever's the next in power is going to end up there, and then everyone's going to work to keep that system the way it is in order that they stay comfortable. Yeah, that's yeah. a very simplified way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah, <laughs> of course, <laughs> I think it explains it more than anything else, and that's why you know the U.S. is much more powerful, but we can't do anything that doesn't risk. Artillery from North Korea going into Seoul, and that's tens of millions of people at risk, and that's too great a risk. So we can have all the power in the world, but it's kind of like the scene in a movie where the bad guy has a hostage.、Yeah. Maybe a sniper could take out the bad guy, but the hostage, which is South Korea,、mm. it's too great a risk to that person to do anything. And what took you to North Korea again? Oh, that's easy. That. <laughs> was, uh, I mean, it was a friend of mine, Jordan Harbinger. Podcasters probably know him because he he does、uh, the Art of Charm podcast,、mm. and he and I had been friends for a long time. And he and a different friend of him, Joseph, who's now now a friend of mine too, they had been planning it for a long time. And he just emailed me and said, "I'm going to North Korea." I think he said, "Be jealous," but then gave me the chance to go. And wow, anyone who gets a chance to hang out with Jordan, do it. He's he's amazing to hang out with. He does things that I don't know most people don't do. Yeah. And it's always fun and always awesome. And so, I didn't have the time or money to do it, but I made time and money and somehow figured out how to do it once. And then that one's so awesome that we went the second time. And when I say awesome, the experience was awesome. You know, no one who goes there, at least no one in our group, believed that we're seeing the North Korea that's anything different than the facade the North Korean government is going to let us see.、Mm. I mean, you see a little bit past it. It's obvious, and nor do I believe that going or not going is going to change the system. If anything,、yeah. I think there's a slight nod toward going. Possibly could increase the chances of 
you know, most places, if you go to see some like beautiful beach somewhere, the last thing you want is for it to turn into a tourist trap. But North Korea, if it turned into a tourist trap, might change the power dynamic. Mm. I don't think that's really going to happen. I don't think going or not is going to change the authority structure there. But it really is an amazing experience to see something very different than anything else. Yeah. I mean, it's, it always seems like this very mysterious, elusive place that only a very few people get to go to. So, yeah, uh, props to you uh, for making, it, making your way there. I can only imagine what it was like. Now, you seem to love what you do, and, and you definitely live with passion. Uh, what is it about coaching that lights you up the most? Like your question about leadership before, how I said it's how do you get there? Mm. I think that's more important than what it is. Kind of, yeah, kind of like if you learn to play piano, learning how to play piano, there, I bet there are a lot of people who know how to play piano, but don't know the theory behind it. And maybe you could explain a little bit here or there if you force them, but don't really think about it. Far more than the people who know theory about piano, I bet they don't know how to play. Mm. And so in terms of loving what you do, a lot of people come to me, you know, when people want coaching, it's not because their life is full of passion and they love what they do and they know that what they're doing is the best thing for them. Yep. People like that don't need coaching. No. And so I work with a lot of people and they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I have too many passions or mm. I don't know which one to choose. or I don't have any passions. And I think the most effective path that I see working over and over again is if you know something you want to do and you're not sure which, like pick something and start doing it. Mm. And if it turns out to be the love of your life, great. You, you can do it until you die. But most people, if it's not the love of your life, it will eventually run out, but something else will start picking up and you'll not like the thing you're doing as much as something else. And you'll say, oh, I got to do this other thing. But if you don't start doing something, that may never happen. And I see people spending years and years knowing that they're, what they're doing isn't what they love, but not starting something new. It like breaks my heart when someone says, I hate my job. And I say, well, why don't you leave? And they say, well, I'm trying to leave. And I go, how long have you been trying? And they're like, three years. I'm like, three years? <laughs> That's a long time to hate what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas if you start trying something new, then worst case is, well, if you have a certain level of skills, then worst case is you'll, it'll run out, but something else will pick up and you start doing that other thing. So leadership, it just ticked off so many boxes of, what I was doing and coaching to not just coaching, but I mean, there's coaching plus there's teaching and both of those complement each other. Coaching is one-on-one, -on -one, which gives, it's much more intimate, but the lever arm is much smaller. You're only affecting one person at a time. I mean, then they affect others, but when you teach, there can be dozens of people. And when you teach online, it can be thousands of people. So much lower interaction per person, but much greater leverage, greater number of people. So I like all these different ways of doing things. But then lately, if people who look at my blog now, you'll see that I'm taking the general field of leadership and I'm focusing more on leadership in the environment. And that's bringing in all the boxes of my passions are still active from what I was doing in leadership. And now it's bringing in a science that I hadn't used before. And so it's even more passion. And I didn't know when I started doing leadership that I'd then decide to focus in leadership in the environment because, man, we can use some leadership there, especially in the United States. It's, we're going in, in many ways, the opposite direction of what I think is healthy. Mm. So I think there's great demand for it. And I only would have found it by doing something that I like a little bit less. But I didn't, at the time that I started doing leadership in general, it was the greatest thing. But then I realized there's something I like even more. And so 
anyone who's listening to this and like not sure, better to start a passion and start acting on it and find out that it's not your great passion, mm-hmm. but reveals what is a greater passion. And you're always going to find greater and greater passions. In my case, what it is about coaching, it's getting to see the change in people, that people changing from thinking, I cannot possibly do X to I can learn X and now I really want to do it. And starting to do the exercises, not because I say they're valuable, because they realize that they're valuable. And then the changes of their lives tend to be, it starts off with leading people usually in work more effectively, but then their relationships with people at work start improving and their relationships with themselves start improving. And then inevitably, a couple months into the coaching relationship, they'll start applying it with their husband, their wife, their kids, with people outside of work. And then they start realizing like that's the measure of the quality of life. Material stuff and technology is, is nice, but it's, it's what's the meaning behind it. And that comes from the emotions that these things make you feel or the emotions that you can create. So your skills with emotions and relationships, in my experience, that determines your quality of life more than anything else. I mean, people, technology people are always saying like, poor people today have access to things that kings couldn't even dream of a while ago. That doesn't mean that they're happy. Plato wasn't sitting there saying, if only there was an iPod, then I'd be happy. I'm pretty sure he, he figured out ways to be happy beyond what people with a lot of technology today have figured out. Mm. And sometimes this stuff can be very distracting from your relationships with yourself and others. So if I coached other things than leadership, I might not get that. The leadership, now I'm probably revealing that it's the best term I've come across, but it's not perfect. There's a missing word in our language to describe learning the skills to influence and persuade and to be self-aware and all the stuff that goes into leadership. For me, in my coaching and teaching, I don't, the word isn't as important as developing those things. And that's what I do. It would be nice if that word existed. There's something not quite there because leadership has a strong business connotation that unnecessarily restricts the value of what I teach. Man, some sound advice in there as well. Thank you for sharing that. The next series of, of questions are meant to be a little bit more rapid fire, a little bit more personal. Are you ready for them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after my long answers, I'll keep them quick. Keep yeah, no, no, no. This is, uh, this is for every guest, so it's not just you. <laughs> not me just saying, hey, hurry up, Josh. This is a set of questions that, yeah, we, we ask every guest. So first one up, what's one book that has had the biggest impact on your life? Besides my own? <laughs> yeah, besides your own, of course. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, you, can, you can use that if you want. <laughs> well, I mean, I wrote mine because all the books on leadership tend to be, they're kind of like about leadership. It's like books about lifting weights, but not actually getting you to lift weights. And so mine is mm. giving you exercises to do. But one that's not mine is a book that I keep coming back to over and over again. And it's the weirdest book for me to describe. It's the Tao Te Ching, the book that Taoism came from. And there's a specific yeah. translation by Ron Hogan, which is, it's a free download online. It's a Creative Commons license. And all I can say about it is that it's not poetry. It's not prose. It doesn't tell you anything. It just makes you think and act differently. Like I'll read a little bit of it. And then a week later, I'll notice I'm doing things differently and in a way that I like. And it's this mysterious book that you can read the whole thing in an hour or two. And you can spend a lifetime going back to different passages and that's all I can say. It's had a big effect on me. So the Tao Te Ching. What's your favorite quote or motto? So a lot of people have 
like files of quotes. And my file gets shorter and shorter all the time because there's one that I keep coming back to. I apologize, it's a little bit long. It's in the first chapter of my book, it's, but it's by Martha Graham, who is the, the Picasso of dance. People talk about her. Like the same way Picasso went from like real, well, he went from like visual beauty to a different kind of beauty that like, it's not so obvious when you look at Demoiselle d'Avignon, it's like weird, but expressive. And so Martha Graham did that with dance. And so this is the quote. It's a little bit long. The dancer is realistic. His craft teaches him to be. Either the foot is pointed or it is not. No amount of dreaming will point it for you. This requires discipline, not drill, not something imposed from without, but discipline imposed by you yourself upon yourself. Your goal is freedom, but freedom may only be achieved through discipline. In the studio, you learn to conform, to submit yourself to the demands of your craft so that you may finally be free. And when a dancer is at the peak of his power, he has two lovely, powerful, perishable things. One is spontaneity, but it is something arrived at over years and years of training. It is not a mere chance. The other is simplicity, but that is also a different simplicity. It's a state of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. And she captures in that, to me, freedom comes through conformity. It's, if you don't get it, that's a mysterious statement. But for people who have learned a discipline well enough until the discipline becomes a part of you, and now you can be free. And how spontaneity comes from years of practice. And simplicity is everything. It's, I love the contrasts, and it's consistent with how I believe you learn these things. What do the words, it will come, mean to you? Well, if you work and put the effort in, it will come. Because, you know, a lot of times after breakup, people are like, oh, you know, your perfect person will come to you. It'll happen. Mm. I think it will come if you put the work in. If you, and I don't mean work like work, 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 drudgery, yeah. but effort. I think it will come if you work at things, if you put the effort in, which requires a certain amount of self-knowledge self of what, what's worth working towards so that the work doesn't feel like drudgery, so it's work is stuff that you like to do. If you were to choose any animal to be, what would it be and why? I think it would be like a duck-billed platypus, not because, <laughs> nice. I mean, just because I like the name and they're kind of cute little things that are apparently very nasty and they have bills and they lay eggs, but they're mammals. Just kind of, I don't know how that relates to me, but duckbill potapi, they're interesting creatures. <laughs> you wouldn't expect them to exist. <laughs> no. But finally, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to promote with our listeners? Yeah, there's actually, people often ask how to reach me, and I've created a page that if you go to it, it will... It connects all my social media and also gives you the chance to get to a page with one of my exercises, which is my meaningful connection exercise, which is like, this is the one I do for the corporate clients the most. And it's how to make a meaningful connection. There's videos and an excerpt from the book. So I'll just promote that page is the best way to access me. So the best place to go is spodicacademy.com slash it will come with no spaces, just it will come. And of course, guys, I will put that link in the show notes. So spodicacademy.com slash it will come. Beautiful. All right, Josh. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Lots of nuggets of wisdom in there that I'm sure our listeners are going to be able to glean a lot from. Your topic of leadership is something that has been requested quite a bit from our listeners. So I'm sure you'll get some comments and feedback on this particular episode when it airs. Well, I measure my success by the success of the people who work on the stuff that I put out there. I mean, the book is a great way to get more of it than my blog and all the stuff that links to from that link. Yes. And 
yeah, if people have feedback, I'd love to hear it either through you or directly. And yeah, I hope what I've shared helps. Thank you so much for your time, Josh. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. And if you want to hear more from the It Will Come Show Fireside Chats, the eyes may be able to then go to itwillcomeshow.com slash podcast. You cannot fail. Leaders.